Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Does the name Roy Murphy ring a bell for anyone? Roy Murphy? It's been a few years, and it's not surprising if, if you don't remember that name. But Roy Murphy in 2013 was internet famous for about 15 seconds. He was the guy who robbed a convenience store in St. Joseph, Missouri, was arrested, and because of having violated his parole, was thrown in jail. And then before the judge, he explained that the whole reason that he had committed the crime was so that he could return to prison. He wanted to go back to jail, and that's why he committed the crime. When he robbed the convenience store, he walked out and waited for the police to arrive to come and arrest him. He didn't try to escape. He only did it so that he could go back to jail. He'd spent half of his life at that point behind bars and had really struggled to cope with life outside as a free man. A reporter went in 2014 after the the original kind of publicity had died down and interviewed him in prison, and he said, I don't know what happened. I just kind of gave up. I just kind of gave up. The interesting thing was, a few months later, as he's in the correctional center being interviewed by the reporter, he admitted he actually, in hindsight, regretted that choice. It turns out it had not been a good idea. I mean, why would a free man voluntarily return to bondage? Why would you do something like that? It's a hard question to answer. It's hard to understand. And maybe that's why it became kind of a popular story. It trended for a day or two because people heard the story. They just couldn't relate. They just couldn't fathom why he'd made the choice that he did. Or maybe it's not that. Maybe the reason why it resonated isn't that we couldn't understand. Maybe it's that on some level, you kind of can relate. That on some level, an action like that, as crazy as it seems, kind of resonates. Because we recognize that maybe not literally, but in other senses, we too have been tempted in the same way. It's not unusual, in other words, to be liberated only to return to captivity under your own strength. And the question he had to deal with was the same question that we have to deal with as Christians, as those who have been justified by faith. The question then is, how do I now live? How do I live? In Roy Murphy's case, he couldn't answer that question very well. He couldn't figure out how to live with this new freedom, and so he went back into the the familiar captivity. Paul says it's that way for a lot of us. A lot of us feel that pull. Romans chapter 6 in our passage is giving us an entreaty, an exhortation not to listen to that voice in your head that's urging you to return to captivity. If you have your Bible with you, you you won't necessarily be able to discern this from just the portion that's in your order of worship. But if you look at 
the entirety of chapter 6 in the book of Romans, you'll see that the chapter is really divided into two parts, into two sections, and that the sections are introduced by Paul's rhetorical questions. If you remember at the beginning of the chapter, we dealt with one in in verse 1, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? That's the, the answer that we're wrapping up in the verses that we're looking at now. And then if you look at uh, our text for next week, starting in verse 15, you get another question related to it, another rhetorical question. Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? So those are the two questions that Paul is anticipating. So this morning, we're wrapping up Paul's uh, dealing with the first question. Should we continue in sin so that grace may abound. His answer, of course, is no, absolutely not. God forbid, by no means, that a life of continual sin is antithetical to who we are as believers in Christ, those who have been brought from death to life. There's no way in the world that having been brought out of death into life, we should now continue to live in sin. He's made the point intellectually, and now he's going to do what a good uh, preacher does. He's going to give an impassioned appeal to try to drive it home. So it's the appeal, it's the exhortation that we're looking at now in these three verses. And each verse represents kind of a a different part of the appeal. Uh, In the three parts, you could kind of say the, the first part is don't. Point number one is don't. Number two is not this, but that, not this, but that. And then number three is because. So we're going to go, don't, not this, but that, and then because. Don't let sin reign. Don't let sin reign. Not this, do not present your members to sin, but that. Present yourselves to God. Because. Sin will have no dominion over you. That's the encouragement that he's given us. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. and Your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Don't let sin reign, he says. Don't let sin reign. The word translated here, reign, is a form of the word basilius, which is the word in Greek for king. Don't let sin be your king. Don't let sin rule over you. It's not that sin doesn't exist in the life of the believer. Obviously, even as believers, we continue to sin. We wouldn't have spent time confessing our sin if that were not the case. Sin exists in the believer. The question is whether it reigns. It exists. The question is whether or not sin reigns. The ruling principle in the life of the believer, Paul is saying, must not be sin. The ruling principle in the life of the believer must be holiness. Don't let sin reign. 
Don't let sin govern your life. Don't let it rule over what he calls your mortal body, your mortal body, your thnetosomati. Thneto, mortal, is connected to the word in Greek for death, thanatos, which emphasizes, just as we have in English, that, that mortal mortality connection, emphasizes a certain aspect of the body Paul is referring to, which is its, its inclination towards death. Right? Don't let sin, which is the cause of death, reign over the body, which has been reduced to mortality by sin. That's the implication. The body suffers from the consequences of sin. And although he's using the term body here, and he uses the term members, and so we're thinking uh, in terms of physicality, when Paul refers to the body, he's referring to the whole person. Uh, He's referring to the parts in order to signify the whole. So don't let sin reign over your mortal body. Don't let sin reign over you. What would that look like? What does sin reigning over us look like? He says it looks like this, uh, to make you obey its passions. Sin reigns over the mortal body when we are subject to our own passions. Our own, uh, the word here is epithumia. Our own epithumia, our own desires, our own yearnings our own longings, our own cravings, our own lusts. When those passions dictate our choices, when we live to serve them, then sin is reigning over us. And when he talks about epithumia, this is a specific kind of desire. Some desires are good desires. Some desire, some longing is God-given. Some of the longing that we have, the longing for grace, depth, and community that Hannah was talking about, that's a longing that comes from a consciousness of, of a, an emptiness inside of us, like something we should have as human beings, as created human beings. We ought to have these things, and when we don't have them, we sense their absence, and we long for them. That's a good longing. Epithemia is a specific kind of longing. It's a bad longing. It's a longing that comes not through nature as God created us, but through nature as corrupted by sin. The biblical view of human nature is a complex one. We recognize that there's how we were made to be by God, but also how we have come to be as a result of sin. And not all of that sin is just a question of what we would recognize as free rational choices. But the effects of sin run deeper than that. Sin, corruption, is more baked into us now so that, if anything, our sin feels natural. It's a difficult distinction for us to keep in mind sometimes, but the desires here that, that are being referred to, the desires that should not rule over us are the disordered desires. That, that come to us naturally, but only because we have been corrupted by sin. If you look at Galatians chapter 5, Paul paints a clearer picture of what he has in mind here in Galatians chapter 5. 
this is towards the end of Galatians, and it's another entreaty, it's another exhortation, where Paul is encouraging the Galatians to walk in the Spirit. So he's dealing with the same subject that he's dealing with in Romans 6, which is sanctification. How should we live as believers? But in Galatians 5, the the term that he uses for that that life is, is to walk in the Spirit. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So there's a, a conflict, there's an antithesis between these two sets of desires. They are incompatible with one another. And the desires of the flesh, the epithumia, the corrupted desires, stand in the way of your faithfulness. They prevent you from doing what you want to do. Picking up in Galatians 5.18, he says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If you think about those words in Galatians, there are a number of touchstones that connect to this short passage in Romans 6. The desires of the flesh, the epithemia, the disordered desires, these are to be fought, opposed, not gratified, not indulged in. We don't do what comes naturally because we're conscious that that nature is corrupted, that those impulses are not always good for us. That's what it looks like when sin reigns over you, to be dictated to, to have your choices made for you by the desires of your heart. Which is why the way that we talk about the path to happiness is so fraught with danger. Because the way that we counsel people to find happiness is to follow their hearts, right? To to find what makes them happy to do what you want to do. And people who find a way to do what the desires of their heart are, to follow those desires, we consider those people to be happy and fulfilled. But Paul says that's actually not the path to happiness at all. It is a path to death, a path to self-deception. If you look at the corrupted desires that, that Paul mentions in Galatians. It's not an exhaustive list. He ends by saying things like this. You're going down the list, and like all lists of sin, all catalogs of sin, I think there's always the temptation to uh, feel relief if your specific sins are not particularly enumerated, right? If he's going down the list, and you're like, yep, no, that's not me, that's not me, that's not me, that's not me. You're like, 
is this going to keep going? Because it, it feels like I'm, I'm eventually going to hit on, oh, yep, yeah, there it is. That's me. The purpose of the list in casting such a wide net is not to say, okay, these are the 19 things that are bad. Don't have these 19 desires. And anything else outside of this, you're good. The purpose of, of casting the wide net is, is so that everyone listening, by the end of the list, no matter how comfortable you felt at the beginning, by the end you're like, oh, yes, this is me. We are all in this together. Like I, too, face this same difficulty, this same struggle against my corrupted desires. All of these actions that Paul lists are visible manifestations of an internal infidelity, an internal lack of faithfulness. If we are called to faithfulness to Christ, not mere obedience, but faithfulness, then all of these desires are an expression of its opposite, an expression of unfaithfulness, expressions of spiritual death. Which is why the fruit of the Spirit, in contrast, these are works of life. Works of life. Uh, And faithfulness is enumerated as one of them. Romans 6 teaches us, as we saw last time, that, that from death to life structure that Paul emphasizes, that we as believers, those who've been justified, are dead to sin and alive to God. And in Galatians, you see that same idea expressed very beautifully at the end. The idea of the old self has been crucified with Christ. The old self is dead. So do not let sin reign. It's as if Paul were saying sin was once the ruling principle in your life. You were governed by the disordered desires of your fallen nature, but now you have been justified. So do not let sin reign. The fact that he says it that way, the fact that he says, do not let sin reign, suggests that you have a choice in the matter, and that suggests that because of justification, something's changed. The new self is different from the old. If you remember our Latin lesson from a few weeks ago, that's Augustine when he talks about the, the state of grace after justification. It is now passe non pecare. It is now possible not to sin. And now Paul is saying, do that. Do not let sin reign. Do not let sin reign. It is within your power to deny sin the high ground in your life. So do it. And don't let it reign over you. Don't be ruled by your passions. Don't. And then he says, not this, but that. In the next verse, not this. Do not present your members to sin. Do not present your members as instruments for unrighteousness. The word he uses there, present, is interesting. It's translated in earlier translations differently. In the King James Version, it would say yield. Do not yield. And although present is a better translation, if you think about the two together, it kind of helps you, in English, triangulate the meaning of the original word. If you think about uh, yielding, uh, that's like uh, 
surrender. You know, in, in the olden days, when you fought a battle and your army was defeated, the formality involved in surrender would be to take your sword and, and yield it up to the victor or to yield it up to, uh, you know, some representative of the army who had defeated you, to present it, in other words. The word translated present here has a military connotation in the original. It's the, it's the word you would use to describe soldiers who are on the parade ground, who have shown up and presented themselves to their commander before the battle. The people who have shown up to fight on behalf of the commander, they present themselves to him. And that's the sense in which Paul is using it here. Do not present your members, your your limbs, your parts. Do not present them to sin. Do not present yourself to sin as your commander, as he says, instruments for unrighteousness. I don't know about you, but I think of instrument, I think of uh, surgical tools, uh, scalpels, that sort of thing. Uh, you could think, I asked Lori, what do you think of when you think of instruments? And she thought of pens because she's married to a husband who has a lot of pens lying around everywhere. Um, but the word for instrument here is hopla, hopla. If you're into Greek history, you know the name of the guys in the Macedonian phalanx with the big shields and the long spears, the word for those guys is hoplite. Hoplite is a soldier, a Greek soldier. Hopla sounds really familiar. Those hoplites, before they went to battle, they were free men. And so they had to equip themselves before serving in the phalanx. The fact that they could afford all of the arms and armor was one of the things that distinguished them and made it possible for them to show up and fight, to present themselves to their commanders. That armor and those arms, the spears and swords, that was called their panoply, a word that we still have today, panoply. A panoply in English now is a a group of items, like you have an array of things, you have a panoply. But to have a panoply in ancient Greece was to have pan, which is all, hoplia, all your arms and armor, all of the weapons necessary to go to battle. That's what it is. So when Paul says, do not present your hopla, your, your, your members as hopla, as instruments for unrighteousness, what he's saying is kind of interesting. He's saying, do not present yourself with arms and armor for service under King's sin to wage his war of unrighteousness. You're like that hoplite. You have this strength, these instruments, these members. You have this power within you. And when you're called, to use it. Paul says, do not present yourself to the wrong king. Do not yield yourself to the wrong master. Not this, but that. But present yourselves to God, he says. Show up and present yourself to God. Put your strength, 
in the service of King Jesus, walk in the Spirit after Christ as those who have been brought from death to life. He told us last week in verse 11 to consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's what he said. And now he's saying those who have been brought from death to life present themselves to God. They consider themselves alive to God and they present themselves to God for service. If you consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God, then it follows that you must serve God and not sin. The old self was crucified. You cannot continue to serve its passions. Present yourselves to God, he says, and your members to God. The whole person, in other words. If you had been tempted to think when he referred to the mortal body, when he referred to the members, that, that all he has in mind here is physical action, the, the, the physical self, here you see that what he has in mind is the whole self. Present your whole self to God. Serve him with the whole person. Present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Make your sword a weapon of life, not death. Serve the king of life, not the king of death. Let the dead serve the king of the dead. But you've been brought from death to life, Paul says. So serve the king of life. Present yourself to him. If that action of a man who spent half his life in prison willfully returning there, willfully going back into captivity. If it resonates, it resonates with us because it's a temptation that we can understand. The problem illustrated in that story and the problem that Paul has in mind here is the problem of giving power to an enemy who is already defeated. Giving power to an enemy who is already defeated defeated, and that's something that we do all of the time. You may be strong now, but you were shaped by things that happened when you were weak, when you had no power and no control. We recognize sometimes this in stories of people, for example, who grew up during the Depression. You know, I I grew up hearing about, you know, why old people are the way they are. It's because they grew up in the Depression, And even though they have money now, they remember what it was like to have nothing. And so they're frugal and they make good choices and that sort of thing. And I was like, "Ah, I don't understand that at all. They were shaped by these events that happened to them when they were weak. They're shaped by things that happened in the world when they had no power to resist. And that's true for all of us. Our own childhoods have shaped us in that way. Our traumas have shaped us. We are shaped by the traumas of the past, even though the people who inflicted them upon us are no longer in charge, no longer have any power over us, in many cases are long gone, long dead. And yet, and yet we continue to live as if they rule and reign. The past is over, but we let it rule us. We let it dictate our choices to us. It's as if we've been released from prison and yet we're still living in the cell. 
And Jesus is reminding you that your prison door is wide open. And you don't have to live there anymore. That's when we get to that last point, the because. The because. The door is open and you don't have to live in captivity anymore because sin will have no dominion over you. To have dominion, the word there is related to the word kurios, which is the word for Lord. Sin will have no lordship over you because your Lord is Christ. Sin cannot rule over you because Christ is your Lord. Don't serve sin because sin is not your Lord now that the old self has been crucified. Serve Christ because he brought to life the new self. And you belong to him. Why? Because Paul says, you are not under law, but under grace. And when he says you're not under law, he will elaborate on that in the last part of chapter 6. But to give you kind of a sense of it, to be not under the law means to be no longer under the condemnation of the law. Or to no longer be under the the penalty of, of sin measured by law. Because now your sin is not measured by law, it is covered by grace. And so you're no longer under that condemnation, and you must not live as if you are. You must not live as one who stands condemned, because you don't. The story of Roy Murphy, who willingly went back to prison, reminded the director of the Justice Center at Penn State of a movie that he'd seen Years ago, maybe you saw the Shawshank Redemption in the early 90s. Remember Morgan Freeman's character, Red, this guy who longs to get out of prison. And when he finally does and he's on parole, he has this complicated desire to return. Uh, He says, all I do anymore is think of ways to break my parole. So maybe they'd send me back. All I want is to be back where things make sense, which is exactly what Roy Murphy said years later. The guy at Penn State said, a lot of people feel this way, but it's very rare for anyone to act on that feeling. A lot of people have difficulty with their newfound freedom, but it's very unusual to actually go back into bondage. When it's prison we're talking about, that's probably true. But when we talk about the bondage to sin, I think it is, in fact, very common to return to it. And the temptation is always there. We've been released from prison, but we still live in a cell. Actually, when it comes to serving sin, it's worse than that. We've been brought back to life, and we're still living in the tomb. But we don't belong there anymore. We have faith in Jesus Christ. We don't belong there. Why look for the living among the dead? the angels say. He is not here, and we are not there. But how do you stay out? How do you stay out of the tomb? The the answer is here, if you have eyes to see it. And there's just the one way. There's just the one way. You don't want to go back. You don't want to be ruled by sin. You don't want sin to reign over you. You don't want to be subject to those corrupted desires anymore, having your choices made for you, doing what you don't want to do. You don't want it to be that way, but but how can it not be that way, considering the power of sin? Well, Paul gives you the answer. 
It's not what you don't do that keeps you out. It's what you do. Don't present yourself to sin. Present yourself to God. Don't hand over your members as instruments for unrighteousness. Present yourself to God and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. The way to struggle against sin is not through not sinning. The way to struggle against sin is by doing righteousness. By doing righteousness. Those acts of righteousness in imitation of the life of Christ, as it were, take up the bandwidth that sin used to occupy. The power of sin over you is now broken, but the only way to live in the freedom that you've been given is to serve God. There's no third way. There is no sideline to stand on. There's no passive option. Once we are freed from our bondage to sin, the only way to live that freedom is to serve the God who freed us. Everything else leads to bondage. The way to be free, free indeed, is to present your whole self to God and to struggle for righteousness. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.